We are wrapping up our series on the life of Abraham today in uh, Genesis 23. So, starting in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose from his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me from Ephron the son of Zophar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now we're going to skip a bunch of verses. That is a long real estate deal. And it ends with Abraham buying this field at the full price. And pick up at verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his, of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Passages like this are often uh, hard to understand what we're supposed to get from them. So let's pray for wisdom. Lord, we know that as we see how you have worked in the lives of your people, there is always something to learn as we read about them, as we see the ways in which you have been faithful. We pray in particular this morning that you would open this word, that we would understand it. So may the, meditation, the words, of my heart, uh, words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how do you describe maturity? It's kind of one of those things that's hard to get your head around. Uh, usually we associate it with age. And it does seem to be somewhat a function of age and experience, doesn't it? But not exclusively. Uh, it is a thing that we kind of know when we see it, but sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes there are people that we th were thought were mature. And then as difficulty comes their way, as, different situa as we see them interact in different situations, we start to realize, oh, maybe they're not as mature as we thought. Especially when we start talking about spiritual maturity, this is hard to put our finger on because evangelical churches have for a long time been nostalgic for immaturity. What I mean by that is because we emphasize rightly 
conversion. (laughs) We often have a nostalgia for sort of that moment in our Christian life. It's the only aspect of your life that you wish you were the younger version of yourself in. Maybe your physical health, okay. But the... (laughs) But... It's the only aspect of your life you wish, boy, I really liked who I was when I was 15. Very few other aspects of your life do you wish you were the 15-year-old version of yourself, except maybe for your metabolism. But, the, but we, we, we don't want to do that. We've confused, in other words, so often what a childlike faith is for a childish faith. And I say that not assuming that I've attained maturity. <laughs> but, this, but that's exactly why we need to be thinking through what this question is. What does it look like to be mature? And uh, there's, one, there's one thing I came, came back to several times this week was a, a set of three letters that John Newton wrote. Some of y'all know who John Newton is. He was a slave trader who came to the Lord uh, famously, of course, wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He wrote a bunch of other hymns. Um, Eventually, as he matured in his faith, became a supporter of the abolitionist movement in England. Um, He was also known for writing letters. Lots of people wrote to him, uh, and he would write back. And there was a set of three letters that he wrote describing spiritual maturity and what it means to grow in spiritual maturity. And he says, you know, early on, our, our, our faith is defined by desire, by the excitement of coming to faith by what we, what we want to find there, and we're really excited all the time. And then he says that there is your kind of spiritual adolescence is often defined by conflict. He doesn't primarily mean conflict with other people. He means internal conflict, right? Starting to understand just how deep the work of God really has to be on your own heart. And then he says that spiritual maturity, kind of arriving at maturity, is defined by contemplation. This is what he says. He says, uh, the mature person, his heart has deceived him so often that he is now, in a good measure, weaned from trusting to it. And therefore, he does not meet with so many disappointments. And having found again and again the vanity of all the other helps, he is now taught to go to the Lord at once for grace to help in time of every need. Thus, he is strong, not in himself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Maybe I'll have Justin send a link to those. (laughs) But... uh, What we see in Abraham here in this passage is somebody who has matured in their faith. Somebody who displays that, and in particular we see it displayed here in three ways. In patience, in humility, and in clarity. Patience, humility, and clarity. The patience piece is... hmm, The... There we go. Uh, The patience piece is something worth kind of understanding what is happening here. Abraham is finally getting a piece of the land. 
Do you remember God's promises to Abraham when he first called him back in chapter 12? I mean, he promises a number of things, but what becomes clear are two things in particular. God promises a people. He's going to have all these descendants, right? And a place. And he receives the initial promise of a people with Isaac, with his son. There's an initial, very partial fulfillment, right? He doesn't have descendants yet like the sand on the seashore, like all the stars in the sky, but he has his son. And so too, he's been promised this, this whole land, and this is the first time that he acquires any land to bury his wife in his extreme old age. He has learned patience. He has learned to wait on the Lord. He's learned, importantly, that all of those promises he is not going to see in the way that you would often hope. We're in a hurry to see God's promises revealed in, in and through us and to us, right? Abraham receives part of it. And we've gone back to Hebrews 11 multiple times in this series, and this is exactly what Hebrews 11 tells us, right? That he died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. The funny thing is, even when Israel receives all of this, even when they are a nation, even when they enter in and take the, the promised land, even that is still just a picture of the bigger work that God is going to do. To redeem people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and not only to redeem this relatively small country in the Middle East, but to make the whole world new to reclaim all of his creation. I mean, even what Israel receives, say at the time of Joshua, or under King David, or any other point along the way in the Old Testament history, whenever even it has, seems to have achieved what was promised here, even that was still just a picture of God's bigger plan. Even that was just simply a part of the whole. And one of the reasons the life of Abraham as a, the man of faith is so helpful for us to see is because that is exactly the situation that the Christian is in, right? We, everything that we have is already earned and accomplished by Jesus, and yet it is being applied in time, over time, in our situations. And indeed, the complete fulfillment of, you know, of, all, of all those things being applied still lies ahead, on the other side of the resurrection. Which means that the Christian life is supposed to be defined by patience, by continued active dependence on God. And we don't like it. You know who likes that the least? Pastors. Ministers. We hate that. It's a constant temptation in ministry, and it's a constant temptation, I think, in, for almost every Christian, it's a temptation when you're a parent, parenting your children. It is a temptation to try to arrive at complete sanctification 
tomorrow. When I was in campus ministry, right, you knew you had four years with people. And one of the temptations was to try to sort of get them completely sanctified at the end of four years, which, let me tell you, that was a futile effort. Even in a church, right, we, we want everybody to be fixed. And whether, you know, this is me <laughs> as a minister working with people, whether this is me thinking about my own individual life, my own life, whether this is you thinking about yours, our temptation is to try to get to the end, which means we usually accept shortcuts. Right? The, the problem isn't the desire to be sanctified or to see other people sanctified. It is when we accept the shortcuts, when we motivate out of guilt or shame or at its worst, intimidation, when we motivate out of those sorts of things, when we create, you know, when pastors create a dependence on themselves rather than on Christ. What we accept is that spiritual growth would be if you can regurgitate some theological knowledge, some knowledge of the Bible, but don't stop and ask whether you're actually loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. We accept behavior modification rather than loving others as Christ loved us. You see the difference, right? There's a difference between a version of being changed where we say, well, look, I can, with a little bit of time, sort of get all my theological ducks in a row and convince myself that I've, I'm therefore changed. And I'm fooling myself. I can think, well, look, if I just get my act together in my behavior, and by that, of course, we always end up meeting what is easily outwardly observed. <laughs> I can get all my ducks in a row, and it all looks good, then I'll be good. <laughs> And that, of course, both of those are deceptions. Instead, what God calls us to do is to come to an ever-deepening understanding of the good news of Jesus for me. A reliance on Him by His Word and prayer the sacrament, in fellowship together. That's what he calls us to. That is the foundation. And building on that, yes, building on it to see what we ought to be doing, to understand our motivations, but it takes patience. And what God does not promise is that you will arrive and see every promise today or tomorrow, or next year. 
or 20 years from now. What God promises is that he will change you over time. And one of the things that we see here in Abraham that is certainly a hallmark of real maturity is patience. To see that God will carry us through. And what he calls us to do, that is our task for the time being. The people he has put in your life right now are the task for the time being. What callings you have on your life, those are your tasks for the time being. And he will change you over time. Along with that patience comes humility. This is an important piece, and they're they're intricately connected, I think. Patience and humility. You see this with Abraham when he comes to these men, and it's worth remembering, if if you can recall, Abraham's other dealings with the people of Canaan. And you might notice how markedly different this is. Instead of being self-protected, he is vulnerable. Verse 4, admitting, right, that he has no place to bury his wife. And asking if they will work with him (laughs) to find a solution. He's straightforward, and and part of of what we skipped in verses 10 to 16, uh, it's a little tedious, I think, um, to modern ears. In some ways, it's actually intentionally tedious, because it's establishing that he dealt straightforwardly uh, with Ephron, that he paid him the full price. Remember how much scheming Abraham was doing in those other interactions that we saw? when he dealt with Pharaoh, when he dealt with Abimelech, even within his family, when he thought he could figure out what God was going to do to provide an heir. Here, he is straightforward. There's no schemes. There's no deception. He's not trying to find a loophole. He refuses. In fact, Ephron tells him, I'll just give you the land. And, you know, it's a little confusing. It's not clear if that's just a sort of the right polite thing for him to do in a situation like this or whether he legitimately means, no, I'll just give it to you. Whatever the case is, Abraham refuses that. He's not looking for loopholes. He wants to pay the full price. He is a man who's been humbled, who knows that God will provide, and he takes steps in line with that, but he is not looking to make it work under his own wisdom, with his own savvy, with his own skill. Abraham is humbled. And this is the irony then that real humility actually requires confidence. Not Self-confidence, per se. Self-confidence is not exactly a virtue. I mean, there's some kinds of self-confidence that are fine, others which are problematic. This isn't really about his confidence in himself. No, when he's thinking about himself and what he can do, he is motivated out of fear and anxiety. 
But when he is motivated in confidence that God will provide, that God is who he says he is, that God has proven himself over and over again, that Abraham has confidence in God, it's when he has confidence in him that he can actually act in humility. Because it's not what Abraham makes of the situation. Rather, when we lack confidence in God, we act out of fear, right? That he won't deliver us. We act out of anxiety that this isn't going to work out if I don't make it work. When we act out of pride, we overestimate our own abilities. But confidence in God allows us to move forward without fear. Abraham doesn't know if this is going to work out. Then he'll figure something else out. (laughs) He goes to them vulnerable and deals with them straightforwardly. Because if we're confident in God, when something that we think is going to work doesn't work, we can simply readjust. Okay, that's not going to happen. We'll go down this path and see if that's where the Lord is taking us. When we're motivated out of pride, when we're motivated out of anxiety and fear, when we run into obstacles, they become occasions for compromise. Well, I need to go this way because my pride is at stake, because what's going to happen if it doesn't go this way? And so obstacles become occasions that call out, our, call out compromise. When we act in confidence with God, obstacles call out our character. Okay, it's not going to go that way. I'll lean on the Lord. And it would be better for me to seek another option than for me to be misleading, for me to be underhanded, for me to be scheming. You see the difference? Our confidence in God makes all the difference on whether obstacles call out compromise or call out character. And therefore, that kind of change of humility is cultivated over time. I don't want to say it's organic because I hate the way we use the word organic in churches usually is a synonym for being unintentional and disorganized. But it is true, and it is important, that God uses agricultural metaphors all over the place. But they're almost always cultivated metaphors. In other words, to be more specific, they're not just organic like any old thing that's growing. What does Jesus talk about? He talks about wheat. He talks about vineyards. Even in that famous psalm about someone growing in the Lord, Psalm 1, right? They're described as a tree planted by streams of living water. A tree that's put in a place where it can thrive. And God then uses our situation and our experience and our li- whatever's going on, the people in our lives... The different, you know, the different pursuits we, we have to change us, to teach us humility. 
And the more that we understand that God is cultivating this in our lives, the more we can weather different seasons. Another famous letter writer, not as well known as John Newton, but a 17th century one was a guy named Samuel Rutherford. He loved talking about winter weather, and he mentions this in multiple letters he writes to people. At one point, he says, grace grows best in winter, which is a great line to remember. <laughs> but specifically, another time, on another occasion, he says, our pride must have winter weather to rot it out. Sometimes God even brings us through adversity in order to cultivate humility, in order to cultivate our confidence in Him rather than on ourselves. Rather than thinking we can trust in our own skills, in our own cleverness, in our own capabilities, He brings us to a place where we need to rely on Him. In that sense, adversity is not incidental to maturity. It is essential to maturity. It is a necessary condition for becoming mature. There's a a little play by Thornton Wilder called The Angel That Troubled the Waters. Thornton Wilder was a playwright in the early 20th century. You probably had to read Our Town in like high school English. Uh, but this, he calls this a three-minute play. It's just, a, just two pages. I have no idea if anybody ever stages it. But it is, it's, a, it's a very short play, and it's set at the Pool of Bethesda, which is, comes up in the Gospel of John. Jesus meets somebody and heals him there, but there's all these people gathered around this pool because allegedly, every once in a while, an angel comes by And the water stirs, and if you can get in the water, you're healed. And so it imagines several people hanging around this pool trying to get in. And to one of the men there, the angel shows himself beforehand and says, do not get in. Of course, the guy wants to be healed, right? He says, you know, so they have this back and forth about it. And he says, without your wound, where would your power be? In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. The adversity we experience is about learning God's sufficiency. It's about learning confidence in Him. That's why adversity matters so much to, to maturing. Because that is how God matures us. We have to learn to depend on Him. Or we will not grow. We must learn to see the depth of our own sin and our own shortcomings if we are ever going to see just how great God's grace is for us. If we're ever going to see the extent of the work of the power of the Spirit in our lives. So we see these features of maturity. We see patience, we see humility, but there's also clarity. 
That's what he, that's one of the chief things that Abraham has gained through all this adversity, through all of his failings even, is clarity. Notice what he says in verse 4. He goes to these men, he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. And those titles of sojourner and stranger or foreigner keep popping up through the rest of Scripture. They pop up all over the place. In, just to give you a few uh, illustrations of this, in Exodus 23, when God's explaining a little bit of the law, he says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Later on in Deuteronomy, near the end of, all, near the, end of the book, in chapter 26, when they're told that they should bring an offering to God when they finally take possession of the promised land, again, the, the land that Abraham's getting a little piece of here, they're told they're supposed to bring this offering, and part of what they are supposed to say when they bring the offering is, my father was a wandering Aramean. Talking about Abraham. We could go on and on about this. That language of being... A sojourner also gets wrapped up with the idea of exile later in, in the Bible. And so, in Hebrews 11, uh, sorry, I lost my place. In Hebrews 11, remember that Abraham is described as a stranger and exile on the earth. Later on in 1 Peter 2, Peter would say, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. This idea of being a sojourner and later of being an exile come up over and over and over again. It is a defining feature of what it means to be one of God's children. It is to be somebody whose own self is not defined by where you are. Now, it, it means you're not just passing through, but it means you're not native either. You are here, but you're not from here. Ultimately, you will not belong here. And listen, there, there are plenty of versions of religion that treat our lives as if we're just passing through. It is, uh, it is part of the def- is a defining feature of Eastern religions, but there's a lot of versions of Christianity that have taught this way as well. Uh, the most, the most kind of classic version of this was the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, which not, while Gnosticism gets its name from this idea of having a secret knowledge, the key idea behind it is that we are just spiritual beings just passing through this earthly existence. And so what's going on down here doesn't really matter. And there's plenty of versions of Christianity that sound an awful lot like that. Again, I think even with Reformed Presbyterian circles, there can be this kind of emphasis on knowing all the stuff. 
And it's all very heady. But no real question about am I loving God's people? Am I loving my neighbors? Am I loving even my enemies? There's also versions of Christianity that go native, right? That become simply expressions of whatever our contemporary culture is that get caught up in American Christianity over its history has a, you know, done this many, many times in a lot of different ways. We get behind some vision of what society ought to be and pretend that that is really what the gospel is teaching us is to do that. And so there are progressive versions of this now. There are conservative versions of this now. But it becomes about buying into some vision of the world. And, you know, it doesn't take long when you cozy up to that for the, t- the tail to start wagging the dog. And then the church becomes more about somebody else's cultural and political agenda than God's word. And even still, I mean, churches get caught up, right, in their great visions for what they're going to do. There's nothing wrong with a vision statement, something that helps us sort of define where, what we're trying to accomplish and where we're, what we're trying to do. But man, it is so easy for churches to get caught up in thinking we have figured out what God is doing. Good thing, too, because nobody else had it figured out for 2,000 years. And nobody else in our city seems to have any idea what that's really supposed to be. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought a lot about this in the book Life Together. He says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community, the Christian community, demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dreams bind men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. And so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God. And finally, the despairing accuser of himself. Sometimes churches are so caught up in our own vision of what we would be and what we could be that we forget that this is God's kingdom and not ours. That God is working his kingdom, not ours. Now, he is at work in the church, but it is his church that he leads, that he is the shepherd of, that he is the king over. And it isn't me, it isn't the elders, it isn't any of us here. It's his church. He is the one that's at work in it, and he is building a kingdom that is, yes, in this world in the sense of with his church, but it is not of this world. And so often we get caught up in forgetting that we are actually supposed to be in it. Or we get caught up 
forgetting that we're not supposed to be of it. And we have our own visions. But clarity comes with reflecting on how God is fulfilling all of his promises and he fulfills them in his son. He fulfills them by sending the son of the covenant. That like Isaac, he brings joy, but he brings joy by coming as the man of sorrows. He is the promised son of Abraham who was rejected by the sons of Abraham. He is the one who bears the burden of the curse of the covenant, even as God had promised in Genesis 15. He is the one who is true and faithful, even when Abraham and all the rest of Abraham's children have failed. He is the son of God sent as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. who laid down his own life for our sake. You see, what we need for clarity is to understand the good news of Jesus. Not some big dream about who we're supposed to be as a church. Not some big vision for what we're supposed to, some political, cultural agenda we're supposed to back. There is a political cultural agenda. It is the kingdom of God. Not some party in the American system. We are supposed to bless the nations, but how? By bearing witness to the good news of Jesus and by loving those who are in need. I mean, this is, in some ways, it is so simple, isn't it? And we make it so difficult on ourselves because we are not content with what God is doing, because we are not patient with what he is doing, because we are not humbled before God. We would rather do something that feeds our pride, something that doesn't end run around having to wait. But the clarity of the good news teaches us to trust in Jesus and not in ourselves. And so John Newton, in those letters on Christian maturity, goes back to this. Yes, he talks about not being strong in ourselves, but in God. And this is what he says. But the mature person's happiness and superiority lies chiefly in this, that by the Lord's blessing on the use of his means, meaning the word and prayer, he has attained clearer, deeper, and more comprehensive views of the mystery of redeeming love, of the glorious excellencies of the Lord Jesus and his person, offices, graces, and faithfulness, of the harmony, of the glory, of all the divine perfections manifested in him, Christ, to the church, and of the stability, beauty, fullness, and certainty of the Holy Scriptures, and of the heights and depths and love and breadths of the love of God in Christ. And thus, though his sensible feelings may not be so warm as they were early on, his judgment is more solid, his mind more fixed, his thoughts more habitually exercised upon the things within that veil. His great business is to behold the glory of God in Christ. 
His contemplations, remember he describes contemplation as a defining feature. His contemplations are not barren speculations, but have a real influence and enable him to exemplify the Christian character to more advantage and with more consistency. Clarity. Clarity is essential to maturity. And it's specifically clarity, not on what we've done, but in all that God has done in Jesus for us. And the more deeply we meditate on it, the more we hang all of our attention on it, the more we will learn the fruits of humility and patience and everything else that defines Christian maturity. And you see, well, the lesson we learn from the life of Abraham, the lesson we learn from the man of faith is trust in the Lord. It is that simple, though it is not easy. But God is good, and he has provided everything we need in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we profess that we have nothing to bring to you. Nothing we can stand with any confidence in on our own but the work of Jesus. Would you give us greater deepening clarity on everything that he has done on our behalf that we would understand more fully that everything we need is supplied by Jesus in his life, his death, and resurrection for us. And even as we come to this meal, would you teach us with that clarity greater humility, and greater patience. So as we receive this meal, would it be just a taste of what we are promised lies ahead? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.